This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We've been hearing a lot about the aftermath of the race between President-elect Joe Biden and President Donald Trump. This morning, we'll talk about that, and a lot more, with former President Barack Obama. His interview with Gail King of CBS This Morning is his first since the election. Let's go. We haven't heard much from him for the last four years. But former President Barack Obama I've been mad. is no longer holding back. I've been frustrated. It was important for me as somebody who had served in that office to simply let people know this is not normal. Barack Obama on the election, his presidency, and family life in the White House. Ahead this Sunday morning. And then we'll be in conversation with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, two movie A-listers with a lot more than that in common. Tracy Smith does the honors. Sometimes I think you actually enjoy these little dangerous escapades. I, I, well, I, I, 
This year, one of the best-known couples in history is being played by one of the best-known couples in Hollywood, and it seems they've been together almost as long. Was there a first impression? You know, I still haven't forgotten it, and I've forgotten a lot of stuff now. <laughs> a little magic with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell coming up on Sunday morning. Alina Cho talks with Leonard Lauder, son of cosmetics queen Estee Lauder. Steve Hartman has the tale of Ethel the Pig's very close call, plus commentary from a masked Jim Gaffigan, and more on Sunday morning, the 15th of November, 2020. We'll be back in a moment. To begin this morning, former President Barack Obama. As we mentioned, it's his first interview since his vice president, Joe Biden, became the nation's president-elect. President Obama talks about that and much more with CBS This Morning's Gail King. Good to see you, the imaginary. There you go. Good to see you. Uh-oh, don't lose your mask now. Almost four years after he left the White House... We all good? We got speed? Former President Barack Obama is ready to talk. Let's go. He's been looking back while writing the first volume of a memoir about his presidency. The feeling that I had entered, not an office, but a sanctum of democracy. President of the United States, take us to that day when you walked in. You know, Inauguration Day is a little bit about everybody else. It's a little bit like your wedding. You're so busy trying to make sure you're doing everything right and everybody's where they're supposed to be that you can't catch your breath. The first time I walked in as president by myself, though, and sat at the Resolute Desk, I think you feel a reverence for the office. I think it was President Lincoln who said, uh, if you weren't religious before you got in office, you sure are on your knees praying once you're in office. President Barack Obama inherited a country teetering on the brink of financial calamity, recession if not another depression. But as he tried to work with Congress, he immediately encountered a wall of resistance. To deny President Obama a second term. We're going to make you a one-term president. Mitch McConnell said that out loud. How do you deal with that type of hostility? Part of what I try to describe is how early that obstructionist attitude starts. It started I mean, day it one. started on day one because we were trying to pass the Recovery Act, the stimulus package. People were losing their jobs, they were losing their homes, and the economy was collapsing. At the time, I thought, all right, well, obviously Republicans aren't going to agree with me on everything, but on this, all the economists agree this is what we need. They'll give some cooperation on this. And we didn't get any. The American Recovery and Reinvestment Act eventually did pass, with just three Republican senators voting yes. But the die was cast. As the president then set out to overhaul the health care system, opposition to his agenda only increased. When he addressed Congress in September of his first year in office, the hostility was overt and it was startling. One of the big examples that many people saw of disrespect, you're laying out the Affordable Care Act, joint session of Congress, and in the middle of your speech, a congressman, uh, Joe Wilson, South Carolina, yells in the middle of that, you lie. I, I, I heard a audible gasp, and I looked at you. You know we could see the veins on your head on the side. So I'm wondering, 
What did you think in that moment, and what did you want to do, and what did you do? I write about this. I know, I, that's I am, why I'm I asking am, you. I am shocked, <laughs> and my initial instinct is, let me walk down and smack this guy on the head. What is he thinking? It's not true. And instead, I just said, that's not true, and I just move on. He called afterwards to apologize, although, as I point out in the book, he saw a huge spike in campaign contributions from Republicans across the country who thought he had done something heroic. Throughout his term, President Obama was sometimes criticized for seeming aloof, not playing the D.C. political game. Do you think you made enough of an effort to reach out to the other side of yes. the aisle? We tried everything. We had Super Bowl parties. We'd invite them to dinner. I'd go to their caucus meetings. The fuss of being president, the pomp, the press, the physical constraints, all that I could have done without. The actual work, though, the work I loved, even when it didn't love me back. As Barack Obama tried to adjust to the presidency and the politics, his family was trying to adjust to life in the White House bubble. There's this weird isolation that you begin to feel. Did you like that feeling? No, uh, I, I don't think you ever get fully used to it. Our conversation Wednesday afternoon was at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, where a painting of Michelle Obama hangs among the first ladies. And that whole political thing? Definitely not her idea. She made it clear she was never into politics, no. but, but she always supported you. Yeah, and there were times when you said, when we do this, she goes, well, wait, what we? What we? I, I quote her as saying, uh, <laughs> yeah. not we, yeah. you. I am mindful of the sacrifices that she made, but the good news is, is that um, for whatever reason, she has forgiven me, sort of. She still reminds me occasionally <laughs> of what she put up with. Hello, everybody. The Obamas were one of the few first families with young children to have moved into the White House. Malia was 10, and Sasha was only seven years old. The impact on father and daughters cut both ways. You said you can remember missing teeth and their round cheeks and their pigtails, that they didn't seem to suffer in terms of lack of time with dad, but you said you were always very acutely aware of it. You know, I, I probably suffered more from not being able to do some of the ordinary dad things that I had done before we got to the White House. I'd come from some security briefing in the Situation Room and reading about terrorist threats and this and that, and then I'm sitting down and Malia and Sasha are talking about like, ah, oh, that boy was so stupid. You know, it takes you out of yourself and your head and reminds you of what's good in the world. Being your first lady has been the greatest honor of my life, and I hope I've made you proud. The former president says as the family left the White House for the last time in 2017, they were able to exhale, Michelle Obama in particular. When the presidency was over, two things happened. One was objectively I just had more time. But two is that she was able to let go of some of the stress of just feeling as if I've got to get everything right all the time. I'm being watched all the time. You know, her releasing... Uh, her breath that I think she'd been holding for close to 10 years at that point. Now Barack Obama can look back on his successes and failures. He had come into office facing high expectations, both as the first black president and at the age of 47, one of the youngest. A lot of folks, in the same way that they expected, now we're in a post-racial America because we elected a black president, I think a lot of people expected well, we've got this young progressive president, and now suddenly we're going to eliminate 
inequality and you know we're immediately going to have universal health care and we're going to have climate change legislation, immigration reform and criminal justice reform and all the things that I wanted to get done. But what I understood very early on is the federal government headed by the president is an ocean liner. It is not a speedboat. Yeah. Ten years from now, 20 years from now, the work you've done may be appreciated as having been good and helpful, but at the time it can feel like, wow, this isn't happening fast enough. President Obama's successor was Donald Trump. Some have seen Mr. Trump's victory in part as a backlash to the Obama presidency. Donald Trump often raises eyebrows when he says he's done more for black America and people of color. <laughs> yes, it does raise eyebrows. Yes. You are correct. I have done more for the African-American community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. What do you think when you hear that? Do you take that as an insult to you no, or I, I, the I work mean, I, that well, you've well, done? I, I think it's fair to say that there are many things he says that I do not take uh, personally or seriously, although I think they can often be destructive and harmful. President Barack Hussein Obama comes up. Whether he took things Donald Trump said personally or not, Barack Obama emerged front and center in the last month of his former Vice President Joe Biden's presidential campaign. I've never lost hope over these last four years. I've been mad. And he didn't pull any punches. I've been frustrated. Michelle Obama always says, when they go low, we go high. It seemed to many people when you were on the campaign trail for Joe Biden. Trump cares about feeding his ego. Joe cares about keeping you safe and your family safe. It wasn't a matter of going low or high. You went in. They <laughs> called it Barack Obama unleashed. Was it personal for you, or did you just think, I've had it? It, it wasn't personal. Actually, what I... You didn't I, have a I've had it moment? The truth is, everything I said, I was just stating facts. You've got a president right now. He wants full credit for an economy that he inherited. He wants zero blame for the pandemic he ignored. It was out of character for you to speak up, Mr. President, that way. I was not the person who, in a White House briefing room, said, uh, how, is bleach the way to solve COVID? I wasn't doing a routine. I was repeating words that I heard. It is not my preference to be out there. I think we were in a circumstance in this election in which certain norms, certain institutional values that are so extraordinarily important had been breached that it was important for me as somebody who had served in that office to simply let people know this is not normal. This election is over. While Joe Biden waits to assume the presidency, President Trump continues without evidence to challenge the election's outcome. They're trying to steal an election. And many of Mr. Trump's supporters continue to stand behind him. 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. What does that say to you about the state of this country? Well, what it says is that we are still deeply divided. The power of that alternative worldview that's presented in the media that those voters consume, it carries a lot of weight. Are you worried about that? Yes. It's very hard for our democracy to function if we are operating on just completely different sets of facts. But it's clear as we sit here today, we're not going to have a peaceful transition. I think about John McCain calling. 
George and Laura Bush welcoming you and Michelle Obama to the White House. Could not have been more gracious. I remember you inviting Donald Trump to the White House. Yeah. If you succeed, then the country succeeds. I wish that you succeed because we want the country to succeed. Right. He does not seem to have taken a page out of any of those playbooks. No. <laughs> so what is at stake here? Well, look, Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. Kamala Harris will be the next vice president. There is no legal basis. There's but he's no getting support from members of the Republican Party who are not challenging him. And that has been disappointing. Yeah. But it's been sort of par for the course during these four years. They obviously didn't think there was any fraud going on because they didn't say anything about it for the first two days. But there's damage to this because what happens is that the peaceful transfer of power, the notion that any of us who attain an elected office, whether it's dog catcher or president, are servants of the people. It's a temporary job. We're not above the rules. We're not above the law. That's the essence of our democracy. And as to advice for his old running mate? He doesn't need my advice, and I will help him in any ways that I can. Now, I, I'm not planning to... Uh, suddenly work on the White House staff or something. No cabinet I, position for you, There are Mr. probably President. some things I would not be doing because <laughs> Michelle would leave me. Yeah. She'd be like, what? <laughs> You're doing what? The goal of the foundation. What he is doing these days, running a charitable foundation, designing his presidential library in Chicago, and along with Michelle, producing for Netflix. Gone are the trappings of the office, such as a presidential motorcade clearing his path. Instead, Barack Obama is rediscovering the simple things. I'm driving along. I'm still not driving. But you're in the car. But I'm in the car, in the back seat, and I'm, you know, I don't know, looking at my iPad or something. And suddenly, we stop, and I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> there's a red light. There's a, a car right next to us. Some kids are, you know, eating a burrito or something in the back seat. Oh, back to life. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica, empathy is our best policy. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hartman has the story of a pig, not in a poke, but in a pickle. Of all the choices, all the places you could click, you see how fluffy that is? All the videos you could surf, why would anyone settle on a sleeping pig? It had to be one of the least interesting things <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, she's not putting on a show or nothing. <laughs> but it's all, it was also the least stressful. <laughs> With political tensions roiling, all Laura Palladino wanted that Friday night was a boring animal live stream. Unfortunately, 
Her desire for drama-free programming came to a crashing halt after the pig knocked over a heat lamp, buried it in straw, and set the barn ablaze. And I started freaking out. And as if that wasn't enough... I was the only one watching. The only one in the world who knew what was happening. Which is what made, like, my heart sink. Like, there was nothing I could do, and it was terrifying. Yeah. Laura tried calling the farm, but no one answered. She even tried 911. But what were they going to do? She lived 80 miles away. That's why, deep down, Laura knew it was hopeless. But she kept trying different numbers anyway. And would you believe... They busted in. She finally got a hold of the farmer just in time. I started crying. Like, this is just a lot. And he was, like, holding her. He's like, I'm so sorry. Like, you could tell how much he loved those animals. I was like, oh, yeah. Hi. Hi Laura. <laughs> yeah. This week, Laura traveled to June Farms in West Sand Lake, New York, to meet farm manager Josh Vicks. Thank you. Yeah. Josh had cared for that pig named Ethel since it was a piglet. Definitely inspiring to know that there are other people that feel as much affection and love towards these animals that we do. The only one uninspired was Ethel herself. Hi. Who appears to have emerged from the ordeal completely unshaken. The farm can now proceed with its plan to breed Ethel, promising the first piglet will be named... Is that good? Laura. Never thought I'd have a pig named after me, but I'll take it. And we'll take her. Why not? As a reminder that most people are heroes just waiting for their moment. Hi, girl. Like mother, like son could be the motto of the cosmetics giant Estee Lauder. Alina Cho talks with a man whose life's work is all about keeping up appearances. For me, this is like memory lane. Many families keep their memories in photo albums. Take this. Pull. Pull. Oh my gosh. So this is from 1946? Yeah. Wow. Leonard Lauder keeps his in a company archive. Everything that we've ever had and done, there's a sample or two here. At 87, Lauder is Chairman Emeritus and former CEO of the Estee Lauder Companies, a $90 billion beauty empire. I tell people that I'm a lipstick salesman. I love to sell things. He's literally shaped an entire industry. The shape of the lipstick that I use, you created that? I did. Everyone had a standard bullet-shaped lipstick. So I took a Gillette Blue Blade, sliced it so that it would fit the woman's lips. It all started 74 years ago with his iconic mother, Estee. I remember sitting in my high chair and in the kitchen, and I would see her mixing the creams on the stove. She sold her so-called jars of hope initially at beauty salons in New York, tempting women with free samples and a three-minute makeover. I've never seen anyone love to make women beautiful like her. It was in her blood. It was in her blood, yeah. It became a family business. Her husband, Joseph, kept the books, and a young Leonard packed boxes of powder and cleansing oil. We had a little tiny factory, and I would go there after school for 25 cents an hour, 
and I'd work. Lauder enlisted in the Navy after college and joined the company in 1958, sharing an office with mom. And I would listen to her on the phone, and did I learn, did I learn? He writes about life lessons in his new book, The Company I Keep, equal parts biography, business, and tribute to his mother. I want to have the best company in the world. Nothing less than that. Lauder expanded overseas. He created Clint Inc., a risky move to take on rivals. I said, the bigger we get, we're going to have competition. And I said, why wait for someone else to do it? I did it myself. It worked. Today, the company owns more than 25 brands. This was your mother's office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very glamorous. Yeah, very as Este aged, that glamorous life hid a private struggle. Like her mother and sister, Este was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She died at 97. How hard was it as a son to watch your mother, who had been so vibrant, yeah. start to deteriorate like that? It was very hard, but I remember being with her and my wife, Evelyn, came into the room and said, Esty, we miss you in the office. She looked at Evelyn and said, I miss me too. Lauders donated millions to fighting Alzheimer's, just one of his many well-known causes. I rarely simply give money to people and say, oh, you do it. I wanted to make our philanthropy transform something. The lifelong art collector made headlines for his pledge to New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. One man's gift is about to shake up the world of art. It is worth a billion dollars. Lauder's love of art helped him find love again. After his first wife, Evelyn, died in 2011, he connected with photographer Judy Glickman, a longtime family friend who had recently lost her husband, Al. He proposes every morning. <laughs> Leonard, why is that important to you? Because I want to reinforce every day my love for her. They got married in 2015. She was 76 and he was 81. It took me a little while to, ooh, is this real and is what is happening? And Oh my goodness, am I really going to be starting another whole life? You know, some people might say, you know, you didn't have to get married again. I had to share my life with someone. It's a different stage of life, equally as exciting and as challenging, but just in a very different way and very special. In his special life, Leonard Lauder says he's learned the ultimate lesson. It's not all about success. If you had to boil it down and put a message in the bottle. Yeah. What is the thing that you want to be remembered for? He listened. That's all. And he was kind. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's yeah, it? Yeah. That's it? He yeah. Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell have been sharing the silver screen and a life together for many a year now. They're in conversation with Tracy Smith. 
Welcome to the North Pole, Jack. In the new Netflix film, The Christmas Chronicles 2, you get pretty much what you'd expect from a big holiday movie. Are you really? I am. Uh-uh, no way. I must be dreaming. Oh, you're not dreaming, Jack. That's Kurt Russell. You're in Santa's village. The real one. Who's arguably the fittest Santa Claus ever. And of course, that's his longtime real-life partner, Goldie Hawn, as the missus. I think it should be called Mrs. Claus's village. Me too. Why? I, I never thought of that. Of course you didn't. But it might surprise you to know that for Goldie and Kurt, the clauses are more than merely mythical. I like your approach to these characters because you take them seriously. This is not a caricature or a cartoon. No. You're right. Very, very seriously. You got to remember, he's a real human being. He's not a comic book character. He's not made up. He was a bishop. He was a man. The question is, of course, is through the myth and the legend and whatnot, how is, how is he still around? How is that possible? But no matter how St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Santa, is still around, or how he and the missus wound up together, the real-life story of Kurt and Goldie has, well, a certain magic all its own. Press don't change, yo! Their first meeting, if you can call it that, happened on the set of the 1968 Disney musical, the one and only genuine original family band. Was there a first impression? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... I think for me, I mean, he was way too young for me. I mean, I was like dating older guys, right? Um, in my, I was, what, 20? I was only 15 years old, so and, I, didn't even have, uh, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a license. Goldie was a dancer without much of a speaking part. And what's more, the producer didn't like her name. He called me and he said, you know, I, I know this is sensitive, but you, you really, your name sounds like a stripper. <laughs> my mother gave me that name. That was my, that was my great aunt's name, Goldie. And I said, oh, I'm not changing my name. I'm sorry. I said, you know, my middle name is Jean. What about Goldie Jean Hahn? Would that be, would work for you? And he went, well, I guess it's going to have to work. And I said, gee, I guess it is. Goldie Jean Goldie Hahn. Jean Hahn. That's where we met. <laughs> I mean, look at this place. The Army couldn't afford drapes. I mean, I'll be up at the crack of dawn here. But by the 1980s, Goldie Hahn was a name. An Oscar winner. I think I'll stay. Who could produce a hit movie and star in it too. Lewis. You were producing, directing, acting at a time when a lot of women were not right. doing that. Right. How many times did you hear no? Not many. No. Mm -mm. But the problem wasn't the no. The problem was the trepidation, really, of other male directors wanting to work with me because they thought that I would want to take over. What you doing in here with a gun snake? Looking for somebody. For his part, Kurt had shed his wholesome Disney image for something a little grittier. When he met Goldie again during his audition for 1984's Swing Shift, both were divorced and neither was looking for love. 
Matter of fact, when I met Goldie, I was at a time in my life, in a period of my life, where I was very definitely going to put my worst foot forward when it came to a, any kind of a relationship with the possibility of a relationship. I put my worst foot forward. If you can handle that, then maybe there's a chance of some reality there of being together. I used to think to myself you that. Worst foot forward. I, a, I, could, I, 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 I could hardly say that. You know. um, um, <laughs> yeah. I would say if you'd done that with me, I wouldn't be with you today. Well, I think I did, but but I did. I did kind of How put so? who I was. Um, well, the first time I met her, I was horribly hungover. Yeah, you know, that, that's not a good foot but forward. You were fine. <laughs> Your worst foot forward. It, well, I didn't try to put my best one forward because it's a hard thing to hold that up. You know, once you've done that, now you've established something that you've set a bar that you you can't you can't stay with. You can't You're keep. You're really you confusing you know. me right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a group therapy session. <laughs> In the four decades since they met, Russell and Hahn have created some extraordinary characters, but each on their own, two very separate careers under one roof. One of them fellas is not what he says he is. Do you? guide each other as far as the roles that you've chosen? Are there ones? Not at all. Do you talk about it before you say yes or no? Very rarely. He's never made a mistake in terms of what he's decided to do, ever. But he's never been bad. Ever. And so <laughs> even movies that I didn't like... You get a lot of pushback on that. I thought, <laughs> was, no, you've never been bad. Was, I'm, I, you've I been, agree with you. I don't you've think been, I've been bad, bad in other ways. <laughs> you know, but... As an actor, no. I mean, I just think you're amazing. You don't understand. There are only three ages for women in Hollywood. Babe, district attorney, and driving Miss Daisy. Of course, Goldie hasn't made all that many career missteps either. And when they're not working, they divide their time between homes in Aspen and this one in Los Angeles. How long have you been here? About four years. We built it, and yeah. it's just so great. I love it. But they say they're proudest like of their blended family. Four children between them with six grandchildren. And, it seems, enough love to go around. So I'm sure you guys get asked this. What is the secret, if you could boil it down? Don't, there's no, no secret. Don't, there's, and, don't. and I love you for asking that question because it's a normal mm. question. Um, but there's two things, uh, for me anyway. And it's that you, you both want to be together. Got, I mean, you've got to want to be together. And as long as you... Why are you laughing? I'm just because, because it's, you're right. It's up and down. It's sideways. It's whatever. At the end of the day, what, how do you explain it? I don't know. I guess it's as simple as saying... I, for me, it's the same thing as what you're saying. I, I, I call that love. But you can actually survive a relationship in a way that when you get older, you go... Oh, I'm so glad I got through whatever period that was. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because the relationships go through periods, sometimes really hard times. But there's nothing sweeter than having a family. And that is worth everything. Just about everybody, it seems, has something to say about masks, including, of course, our Jim Gaffigan. I'd like to talk to you about masks. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to wear a mask. At this point, we all know why we're wearing these things. If you leave your house right now and encounter someone, they'll likely look like me. I mean, they'll be wearing a mask. Not everyone's as good looking as me. 
Whenever I see someone with a mask on, they look perfectly normal. They look like a mask pro. My personal experience with masks has not been so smooth. My first obstacle is that, well, most adult masks are too small for my head. You see, I have a big head, both physically and metaphorically. You could actually store another head inside of my head. Like if anyone's missing their head, it might be in here. I've known I've had a large head since middle school when my football coach announced to the entire team that he had to go to the nearby high school to get a helmet that fit my huge head. Don't worry, those kids were super nice. I don't find wearing a mask particularly comfortable, but that hasn't stopped me from forgetting I'm wearing a mask. On more than one occasion, I've attempted to eat french fries with my mask on. Luckily, I always dip my fries in ketchup, so there's no boost to the ego quite like walking around the world with stains from food on your mask. Is that blood on your mask? No, 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 no. It's ketchup. Be safe, everyone. I'm Jane Pauley. We're heading out a little early this week, so please join us when our trumpet sounds again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.